Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Um, you guys are going to be amazed at the guest I have today. Um, he's back for a second time, but he's done uh, uh, outstanding research. I don't know how to, else to put it. Um, he's back with a new book, uh, uh, Freddie Silva. Um, you guys know him for his work that he's done in his books called Missing Lands, Lost History of the Resurrection. Um, he's back with a new book called Scotland's Hidden Secret Past. And he has tied together what the roots of where the Anunnaki actually came from, going back to Armenia and Egypt. Um, they, they, they went from uh, all the way into Scotland and Ukraine. And this is going to be so fascinating talking to him about this. I mean, he has went to these places and investigated the megalithic and monolithic sites that they built. Um, their offspring were there, the giants. I mean, he gets into all this and he actually might have found the place where they live. And we're going to pick up and start there. But let me just tell you about my guest again. Freddie Silva is a best-selling author, leader, and researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He is also a leading expert on crop circles. He's been published in seven books in six languages and produced in 13 documentaries. Described by one CEO as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. For two decades, he has been an international keynote speaker with notable appearances at the International Science and Consciousness Conference, the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energies and Energy Medicine, an Association for Research and Enlightenment, in addition to interferences on Gaia TV, History Channel, BBC, and radio shows such as Earth Ancients, Fade to Black, and Coast to Coast. And I want to welcome him to the show again. Freddie, thank you for joining me. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, I'm going to have to shorten that bio one day. It's getting a bit long. So half the program is the bio. I, I really have to commend <laughs> your research. It, it's amazing. When I, um, when I emailed you about doing another show, I, I had no clue you'd written a new book. And then I, I found out you wrote a new book and like, I, I, it's so amazing. The, the research you do is so like, what, like how you were able to put this together of where the Anunnaki actually were and the, 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 the trail they blazed. I guess that's a good way to put it. Like, you know, like where the, 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 the terrain they walked and the, the, the places they went to and the, the, the things they built. And um, Scotland was one of those places, right? And it, it traces back to Armenia. Is that correct? Yeah, it was basically their offspring thousands of years later. And by this time, they have a completely different name, although there are roots to and uh, nuances that uh, these were the people that originally came from the Armenian highlands. Uh, the thing about Scotland's sacred places is that there's hardly any, any information available, which is what makes the quest so interesting. And uh, I literally traced the story all the way back uh, to the Mediterranean originally, uh, just using linguistics uh, and a couple of descriptions of the people that built the stone circles up there. And I couldn't quite put my finger on where these things were, but it was something that happened in Sardinia, of all places, uh, that led me back to Armenia, uh, using both uh, genetic uh, information, but also migration information. And once I was in Armenia, uh, it was pretty obvious when uh, two things just hit me, that we have the Anunnaki, the people of Anu in Armenia, and then about 3000 BC in Ireland, we have another divine bloodline, people called the Tuatha de Danan, who are exactly the same people. And the thing that links them together is a group of people called, excuse me, <coughs> A group of people called the Tuat Danu, uh, which is the uh, Anunnaki, when they had migrated around the Black Sea to what is now Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, to a land called Scythia. 
There'll be a test on this, by the way. Um, and uh, essentially, the, the name keeps adapting to the region bit by bit. And that's when I realized I'm, I'm looking at the same group of people that were in the Armenian highlands over 12,000 years ago. And at 6,000 years later, they suddenly go through Europe, they split into two groups, and one of them forms the uh, group of people that we now call the Scandinavian uh, people. Uh, very tall, light-skinned, blonde, blue-eyed, and that was one of the descriptions that the Anunnaki used to have. And eventually they make their way up to the uh, furthest islands off the coast of northern Scotland called Orkney, and that's where we find the oldest stone circles in Britain, not the other way around. So they, so they sort of came from the north and then went down into Britain and also around the coast island as well. So we're looking at it a a completion of a, a very long tradition first established in the Armenian highlands by the Anunnaki. Um, now, do you agree with Michael Tellinger that like these stone circles can have like amazing healing properties? Oh, they do. Uh, I mean, one of the things that you'll find is that the stones were specially sourced for a number of reasons. And uh, one of them is because they are very conductive. Uh, they are very high in a specific type of quartz which is a piezoelectric material. And under certain conditions, if you put these stones in the right places, and usually the, the stone circles are on fault lines, so they're moving slowly all day long. They're in a, in a permanent state of vibration. And this creates an electrical charge in the rock. And two, there's a lot of magnetite in the stones. Then combined with all of these stones in a specific location, in a specific layout, uh, you will start induce uh, a kind of electromagnetic field uh, which will in, uh, sort of transform itself into a certain frequency that people walking in there uh, will be affected by it. Now, sometimes it's to do with healing, sometimes it's to do with altered states of consciousness, but at least we do know that there's a measurable difference between the stone circles from the outside and the energy that you cross when you cross on the inside. Uh, and there are, of course, every culture on the face of the earth has these stories of associating these sacred places with healing as well. Yeah, and do you think that's kind of like what they were doing? Like when you look at like the the, the path that the Anunnaki and the Tuatha de Danan, the, the the I guess that the, the the word I say the trail they blazed, the the terrain they crossed. Like as they as they they just they they went across path and they made monoliths and they made stone circles and you know they made sites for astron astronomical value. Um, was this all to set up for our civilization and for our later on healing and for us to learn about and maybe discover now at a time when our consciousness is at this level and we can understand it? Oh, I think it's more of an insurance policy. I think that they're already way ahead of the game uh, 12,000 years ago. And uh, then we had, of course, the, the Great Flood, which leveled everything. And most of them drowned. Uh, the Egyptians made the point about this. In fact, the Egyptians called them the, uh, the Shining Ones, the followers of Horus, the same people. And they described them exactly in the same way. And there is a genetic link between the Egyptian and the Armenian culture too, which we now know by the DNA haplogroups. Um, but the, what they were trying to do was they were trying to rebuild their former, uh, if I, again, to quote the Egyptians, they were rebuilding the former world of the gods that had been destroyed by the Great Flood. So they were trying to carry on in a world that was much changed uh, geographically and geologically and also climatically after the flood. But having sort of st stood back and look at all of what they did and all the people that have associated them around the world were doing, using big megaliths to create what you and I could easily do with tree trunks or twigs, 
You know, you didn't need to go to the, the trouble of having, you know, 400 ton rocks to achieve this effect. The, the association seems to be the, the, the connection is that they left us this kind of insurance policy because these sites were meant to last a long, long time. And now, and you made the point very correctly, that we're in the middle of huge changes and we kind of lost our way in terms of our connection to the, uh, to the natural world. These are the places where you go to remind yourself of how things are supposed to be and how they're supposed to work in balance. So here in the stone circles, for example, we can understand mathematics. We can understand the ratios of the earth. We can find ourselves in terms of personal attunement. We can also connect to another level of consciousness if you are of that kind of understanding and you allow yourself to uh, progress through different dimensions at these sites. You will also uh, get a certain amount of healing, but also... Um, you will uh, also figure out where the Earth is in relation to the uh, solar system and what comes out of the solar system very regularly, which is the meteorite showers, especially in November, which are usually the problem that uh, wipe civilization out, at least as far as we know, uh, 13 times since the Great Flood. We've had 13 near catastrophic scenarios. There's always this association with this meteor shower that we cross every November. So I believe that what they were leaving for us using big stones was an insurance policy uh, to help ourselves, but also to understand uh, so that we can understand our position relative to our place in the universe. Uh, so they fought forward, obviously. They, they had our very best interests at heart. Yeah, and we talked last time about that they, they possibly could have been from Orion. We, you talked about that there might, might have been a, a ladder from uh, heaven that one time, they, 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 the one group of um, natives talked about that, uh, that possibly might have been at one point, then one point they, they took it away. That they, they, that, um, but, but do you think that um, there's, there's um, that they left markers that, that, that leave, um, that leave uh, uh, homage to Ryan, or, or you know, saying that, that, that they that leave, um, that leave, uh, you know what I mean? That they that leave uh, clues to Orion. Well, there was a uh, in, in the in the previous book that I wrote, I kind of pointed this out as well that uh, there were many mentions through indigenous people that uh, they had uh, kind of helped humanity survive the flood, or what survivors came out of the flood. Uh, the gods didn't do too well for the flood either. But it was their charge to help the surviving humans kind of get back on their feet. And then they kind of, they said they withdrew the ladder to heaven. And I suspect now that we've come, you know, half a circle back to where we were 12,000 years ago, that the idea was that we had to look after ourselves. We have to, we were given the accoutrements of civilization. And now it's up to us to figure out our own progress in terms of civilization. And I think we're getting there. Uh, it's a slow progress. Uh, but I think that this is what the whole purpose was, to, to not rely on outside help, but to help ourselves, given what we given and i think and now looking at where we are climatically for example i find that we are about to relive in the next two decades exactly what was going on eleven thousand years ago but this time instead of requiring outside help we're now going to be helping ourselves to maybe overcome and even alter the outcome or the potential outcome of what's headed towards us so I think that's what the, the, the kind of plan was all along, uh, that we would have to find a, a way to become very self-determined rather than relying on somebody else who's much more advanced in order to get through life. Otherwise, what would be the purpose of living and uh, being born here if we're all asking for help from somebody else?
you know, there's there's other great researchers like yourself, like a, a couple other Anunnaki researchers, uh, Matthew Acroy and Billy Carson. I follow, and they 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 follow like the weather patterns and solar changes and like and stuff, and and they follow past cataclysms too. And um, I, I don't know how they feel about it, but do you feel like something? But they, I think they've mentioned stuff before that we could be in a. They, we we could be in 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 in, a, in line. They haven't said it necessarily, but they everybody has mentioned that we we that we could be in line for what Zachariah Sitchin eventually said that like something every could come every thirty six hundred years, but um it's not Nibiru or Planet X. It's uh like you just said, it could be some kind of cataclysm, right? But it but oh absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, um, Sitchin also made up a lot of his material. We know that for a fact. Uh, not to say that. We should throw everything out that Sitchin did. I mean, he did put us in a situation where we were able to look at this information from a completely different point of view, but he did sort of force a lot of the facts to fit the theory, which is what, what you shouldn't be doing. So I've got to give him credit for having started the conversation in the first place. But now if you bring in people like Robert Schock, who have been looking at uh, cataclysmic events using solar flares alone, it is quite clear that we go for a very regular process. I mean, in 2500 BC, a massive flare hit the earth, completely destroyed the entire Chinese Navy. And it was felt down in New Zealand. I have a, a story from the people who live there called the Waitaha, who hardly anyone's ever heard of, uh, probably the indigenous people of New Zealand back then. And they said that these things, this, these flares came out of the sky and literally burnt the whole of the country. They had to go and hide in caves. And you hear these stories again and again and again. So what the ancestors were trying to tell us is that the uh, always be observant of the sky we built these temples to obsessively look at the position of where things are in the sky and specifically comets they felt that those were the biggest problematic things and in fact they called them the uh, the vile stars back in the days nothing good ever came out of comets and the idea was to be prepared uh, you know that the earth is going to be going through space and space is a very chaotic place and once in a while, the Earth is in the wrong place at the wrong time, whether it's from large incoming projectiles or solar flares, which, uh, you know, if you happen to be on the wrong side of the sun, you're going to get burnt. And that happens quite regularly, too. So I think that was part of the parcel of this sort of um, this technology was to make sure that we understood our position in the bigger scheme of things so that we would prepare for the next one. Yeah, and it, and it looks like maybe where we have a good we have a lot of good researchers like yourself and the other people I expect that we we might be able to get out of this like this time that we might be able to survive it you know like it, yeah it's possible now I want to get back to like the research you did like how, now I, I don't know if we got into this like what were the genetic markers that kind of pointed everything back to Armenia and Egypt like um because it wasn't Sumer everybody thinks the Anunnaki are from Sumer but you said it's older than that you, you know you mentioned that they they go back to Armenia and then you even said there's Sumerian writing around Ukraine which I thought was interesting that it's it's older than Sumerian right or did you is that what how you, or did I butcher that yeah, we tend to associate the Anunnaki with Sumeria, but that's not the case at all. Uh, Sumeria was around 4000 BC, and there's an archaeological layer of civilization that underlies the Sumerian layer, and that comes from a place called Urartu, uh, and Urartu essentially was Armenian region back in that day, and before that they were called the Subarian people. So it's a very confusing story that hardly mm -hmm. anyone's aware of. Uh, there are many different twists and turns in that part of the region, but um, the Armenian story goes back much much further than Sumeria and in fact one of the oldest stone circles in the world there is dated at 26,000 
2000 BC, which makes Gobekli Tepe look like it was built yesterday. So we're talking about a completely different part of history that no one's ever heard of because hardly anyone's translated their information into English and they're desperate to tell people. So when I was looking at the concept of the Anunnaki, uh, it seeks from reading the, the earliest books of Enoch, it's pretty clear that uh, when, uh, in fact, Enoch was not his real name, by the way, it was Ahmed Ur-Anu. He was actually one of their kind. He was one of the, the few learned, half human, half divine people who could actually hold a pen and scribe down what they were telling him. And if you look at the story very carefully, the, the terrain that he's describing, including these two enormous uh, oceans, which turns out to be the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, is a pretty good dead ringer for the region where the Armenian civilization kind of took hold. But the Anunnaki were not there only. There, there were seven, as far as I could figure out, there were seven other groups of them, and they went by different names. This is why it's been so difficult to figure out the story. And this is why I sort of, uh, the last book uh, ran into 100,000 words, because I finally worked out by asking people who speak dead languages around the world, what do the meaning of these names uh, mean? So, for example, in South America, you have Vidakosha, who appears after the flood as a god with a group of seven sages, just like you hear everyone else in the world, including with the Anunnaki. And they call them the Haihaiwapanti. Well, until you understand what that means in Ayamara, it means the shining ones. So it's Vidakosha and his shining ones. They were very tall, light-skinned reddish hair and I thought well wait a minute we're talking about the Anunnaki here so they uh when I piece the story together it turns out that they appear to be living on seven or eight islands around the world or places that behave like islands and one of them was on Lake Titicaca so Tiwanaku the city of Tiwanaku used to be an island in this massive lake almost like an inland ocean all the other island nations where these people lived have gone but the one that survived the location survives uh, at least in name, is still in the Armenian highlands, and it's called Ani, which is a variation of Anu, because the word changes over time, depending on the dialect. So we're left with this one place that we seem to be much more familiar with, in, in the uh, at least in the European and Caucasian sphere, because that's the story we hear about in the Bible, about the Anu being part of this region. But it turns out that they were also in other parts of the world, and the Egyptians agree that there was an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean where they also had the homeland, and that disappeared in the global deluge as well. Like, would that be considered like the Indus Valley? Like, I'm not sure about the Indus Valley and how it fits. It seems to be part of another story, uh, which is developing. Uh, in Indian mythology is very confusing. If you ever tried to tear it apart, uh, and I think Graham Hancock has done a fairly good. Uh, uh, he's, he's made good progress at trying to decipher it, but it's still a headache because it's a language that it's hard to understand because of the way it's written and the metaphor that it uses. But I can't, the only connection that I can find there to this story is the, um, the people of Aru, uh, which is, again, they describe them as being very tall, uh, light-skinned and red-headed with green eyes. And that seems to be a typical description of the uh, the Anunnaki as well. So they may have been in the Indus Valley too, but it's an ongoing sort of development. I still don't have enough information to sort of make a clear judgment on this. Well, I I remember I one I have to go back in my videos. I did a video one time on um one 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 uh, a video on the Anunnaki in the Indus Valley, but 
What one tablet is uh, Enki in the world, New World Order? Not the New World Order. Enki in the World Order, where he's talking to Anana, and somebody told me that he mentions an Indian city in that tablet, and um, supposedly that would make sense because supposedly Anana had, if you look at different researches, Anana had designation over the Indus Valley. Supposedly, I mean, you know, this is just all by word of mouth. I we don't know, you know, for it's it's hard, so hard to say, you know. I mean, because all this information, I mean, we don't, it's just so hard to say what's what's real and what's not and what's, you know. Well, there's two things you need to bear in mind, and this is where I got caught as well. First of all, the names are not necessarily names, they're titles. There are many people that carry the same title. So Enki is a title. Osiris is also a title. There are many people called Osiris. That's where it gets really, really confusing. So once we're talking about Enki in the 4000 BC uh, uh, era, well, you're already 6,000 years away from the real guy called Enki that was uh, one of the Anunnaki. So, and also because the stories get um, uh, written down, they get destroyed, and then they get rewritten. And then sometimes there's a political sort of smear campaign that goes on. Uh, so that by the time the Babylonians got the story from the Sumerians, the Babylonians had changed the story too, to make them more politically acceptable and also give them a hierarchy with the people around them. Uh, when the Israelis and the Hebrews get taken to Babylon, they took the story and they changed it totally uh, in order to favor themselves as being the only people of God. So you see, everybody is changing the story. The trick is, how far back can you go? And the further back you go, the more likely you are to find the truth to the story because it's been less polluted by religion, by uh, personal interpretation, certainly by translation. Uh, there are always translation errors. And that's what I enjoy doing. I want to go back to the original sources as far as I can and see if there are overlaps between different cultures with the same story. Now, if there's an overlap, now you can start stringing the story together. So, for example, part of the, uh, the Anu people I actually found in New Zealand in a story that started in Easter Island over 12,000 years ago when they were still describing Easter Island as a group of islands. Now, that only happened when the sea level was 140 feet lower. So you can see how this story is much, much older, much more complicated. But yet they describe these people, which they call the Urukeu, uh, by the same terms as the, the Anunnaki was being described by the Sumerians 6,000 years later. So you see how confusing it gets. Uh, so you, you really got to just step back a little bit and figure out, first of all, yes, uh, the stories change politically, and two, the names are titles. So different people can have the same title. Yeah, now I wanted to ask you about the, the giants because everybody's always interested in the giants. Like, and that, that always gets a lot of, uh, you know, people love talking about the giants for some reason, but um, what the, obviously they're an offspring of the shining ones, right? But they're not acting like the shining ones. They're very, uh, uh, they're, they, they're, they're eating humans, right? So they're, they're not acting yeah. like the shining <laughs> ones are creating astronomy and sites for us to you know expand our consciousness these giants are acting you know insane right i mean how does this happen and what where does this all fit in well this is before the flood so we're now talking over eleven thousand years ago so you have the lords of anu who are essentially a hierarchy uh you have the watchers who are also part of the same family but they're more like go-betweens between uh, them and humans they didn't really want to hang out with humans that much they kind of want to leave us alone they, they respected the fact that you have hunter-gatherers 
and you have people who have already learned it. And usually the two don't go together well because you have to let the hunter-gatherers raise their level, raise their game, uh, but you keep feeding them a little bit of information at a time to help them raise their level. Uh, to, to try and interfere in the development of another, of another civilization is terrible. It's a terrible idea. It never works. Uh, if they need help, certainly help them, but uh, help and then move on. And what happened was, according to the traditions, the, um, uh, there's a small group of the watchers, for reasons that we still don't know, decided to mate with human women, and it created all kinds of genetic problems. There was a huge genetic mismatch, starting with the fact that these people were very tall. So by my standards, they would be extremely tall. I, I'm six foot five. These people were eight to eight and a half feet tall. Wow. So you have a problem there trying to mate with human women who gave birth to infants and died during childbirth. And the uh, uh, Wichita of Oklahoma still have this story, by the way, uh, in, in North America. Now, that wasn't the problem. Uh, the problem was that these children that did uh, make it onto the world, they grew up to be even taller than their uh, um, watcher parents. But it was their offspring when they started mating. That's what caused the real problem. There was a total genetic malfunction and they grew into giants. So difference between tall people and then giants. You've got to have a, a scale here. Now, these giantesque people were covered with red hair. They were barbarians. And yes, humans was what was for dinner every evening. And uh, they completely uh, overran the earth. And this is the point where the lords of Anu looked at the situation. They asked the watchers to you know, bring in the, uh, the bastard children, uh, sorry, the bastard offspring of the bastard watchers. Okay. And this is their exact words. And they didn't have the manpower. The remaining watchers didn't have the manpower to rein in these people that were breeding out of control and the human race was going to be exterminated by these giant horrible people um so they had to basically use their power of will in order to bring in these enormous rocks that the earth was crossing their field in november as always it's always the torrid meteor shower and they forced these rocks literally to pull out of their orbit and crash into the earth to create the flood they reset the clock and they knew they were going to die with it too it wasn't just humans the gods got it too. So the funny part of the story is that we owe a modicum of gratitude to the Anunnaki for doing this, because right now you and I would not be having this conversation. The human race would be dead without their intervention. And that's the crux of the matter here. But here's the, here's the wonderful part of the story. Fast forward the story to about 5,300 BC, which is when I determined that the earliest structures in Scotland were built. When the, um, Tua, the, when the Anunnaki, uh, a.k.a. the Tuatha de Danu, a.k.a. the Tuatha de Danan, <laughs> I hope you're keeping track of this, yeah. when they eventually reached Ireland, well, it was kind of a funny story because they, uh, they came there from two places, from the north, so from northern Scotland, and then from the uh, Mediterranean as well. They linked up in Ireland, uh, not far from Knocknaray. There's a massive massif there, has the, uh, all the sacred sites in Ireland. And it's kind of funny because they landed in Ireland and they described that they had a very uneasy time living side by side with a group of people called the Formorians, who, exact, who, who were the same giants who had escaped the flood and they're all covered in red hair. And they were still barbarians when they found them, what, 7,000 years later. So it's kind of a, a strange twist of the story that after all of this time, the Anu are still trying to bring in civilization and maintain a divine bloodline wherever they go and teach people astronomy and mathematics and the elegance of civilization. And yet in islands and uh, in parts of some of the islands of Scotland, 
they were still coming across the same people that tried to wipe out in the first place. Wow. And then um, what you found that when, in your book that you focus on that the, the, the people that they talked in the size of Tuata de Danan, they, they talked about these people called the, the Pape and the Petty. Can you talk? And those they were, were a section of the Anunnaki. They kind of wore uh, robes or something or white tunics and they were kind of like priestly. Is that correct? Yeah, there was only two pieces of information that were available in the Orkney uh, archipelago. We have the biggest stone circles in uh, Britain. Uh, we have some of the most oldest sacred sites in, the, in Europe, and we know nothing about them. Uh, all we have is a couple of statements by some of the arriving Scandinavians, and they talk about the Pape and the Petty, and uh, they were quite tall. They're dressed in white tunics, and they behave kind of like... Uh, a society apart from the locals that spoke a completely different language. They described them as strangers from afar. That's all I had to go on. And I thought, well, how do you make a story, let alone a book, out of this? And I just had to keep following the, the trail of breadcrumbs. Well, one thing led to another, and I began to study Armenian as a language. It's a very difficult language, uh, but it's also the root of uh, all Germanic and English and also Basque. And also, because if you follow the trail, you find a lot of the uh, origin of Scandinavian, also Gaelic, in the Armenian language. Well, that gave me something to look at, and I amazed to find that the word papa or pup actually means a holy person or a legate. So I thought, wait a minute, these people who are described as acting like a priesthood, who dress in white robes, are described exactly the same way, by the same word in, in old Armenian language. And the Petty were also a, a sort of a, an identical group. They're actually, uh, their original name was Petr, and it comes from, uh, from Egypt. They are the masters, initiates of the Egyptian temple, and they were also very tall, and they dressed in white tunics. They're the ones that were responsible for observing the skies. So they were astronomer priests, and all the stone circles in that part of the world are all astronomically linked. So now I had an overlap of information that told me that there was a group of people from somewhere in Armenia who migrated to Scotland. And secondly, another group from Egypt and the Middle East who also worked alongside them. Uh, one of them seemed to be doing all the hard work and the other one was looking at the stars and the two joined hands to form the temples. Well, that was what was being done in Egypt, uh, temple culture all along anyway. They just replicated the same method when they moved to Northern Scotland using stone circles and, and other uh, places of veneration. Yeah, and um, and the the the, the megaliths or monoliths that they built. Um, can you talk about that? There's like the, the what what's it called the the ring of Brock in the uh, the oh, circle of Stannis. Um, these are enormous monoliths, like uh, and and these are the the shining ones, right? Like the the Anunnaki, like um, and these are all in Scotland, and they're all in your new book, like and and uh, they're pretty amazing. Uh, they're astonishing. They're some of the most beautiful stone circles in the world. Uh, in fact, Stannis, there's only three and a half monoliths standing out of, uh, out of 11. And even those three are beyond belief. It's like you're standing inside a machine. I mean, these are unusual because they're 19 and a half feet tall. They're only about six to eight inches thick. They're standing on their center of gravity. And they've got gale force winds there virtually every day in that part of the world. So how they stay, remain standing is 
extraordinary. But they're very shaved at the top into very fine spear tips. Uh, the angles are specific to the angle or slope of the Great Pyramid. But what I thought was astonishing was the fact that there's freestone circles that dominate Orkney. Uh, two small, uh, sorry, two large, one small, and they're not in a perfect line. One is slightly askew from the other. And I thought, well, it can't possibly be that they were also mimicking the belt stars of Orion, because if I could prove that, I have another link to the Anu, because the Anu were intimately associated as being as, uh, with Orion, and specifically the belt stars of Orion, as were the shining ones in Egypt, as were every one of these people around the world. There's always this overlap between Orion as their homeland originally or spiritually. So whichever way you look at it, I'm having an overlap here. Uh, so I did um, uh, sort of uh, archaeological astronomical alignments, and I found that in 5300 BC on the winter solstice, you do see Orion's belts for the first time crossing the landscape above Orkney in a bowl, actually. It's like this, this, the stone circles are perfectly placed to take advantage of this natural landscape out of which comes and rises the belt stars of Orion. And uh, that was the first, uh, the, the, the first clue. The second clue is that um, when you actually take the center line from Brogath to Stennis and follow that line straight, you end up at Giza. And then I figured, well, what is the relationship between the three Giza pyramids and these three stone circles? Well, if you take a very accurate archaeological survey of the three pyramids, mirror them in opposite on top of the three stone circles, the tips of the pyramids match exactly the centers of the three stone circles on the landscape. So that is pure mathematics. You can't make this stuff up. So you have a lot of overlaps now linking these people, uh, the Anu people, with this part of the world by behavior, by the way they function, by their mythology, and also by name. Because the word Stennis, the word Brogar, and the third circle, Bukam, they are either Armenian or they are Egyptian words. And they actually mean what they're actually supposed to be. For example, in Egyptian, Braga actually means the circle uh, of measurement of the sun. So that's pretty much what the stone circle is doing, is measuring the sun. Uh, Stennis is an Armenian word, which means the place of council. And up until the historical era, it was still known as a place of council by people who used to meet there from all the islands. So you see, there are many overlaps linking these ancient cultures and how they migrated all the way to this godforsaken part of uh, Northern Europe. It's amazing. It's amazing. And the last question I have for you is, well, oh, I have two. Uh, I thought you made one really interesting um, comparison about Nefertiti, um, that she wasn't really Egyptian, that she might have been different. Can you can you talk about that? That maybe she might have been an offspring of these shining ones? like, Or, or maybe she was like a... Um, did, is, that, is that what you were getting to with that? Well, there's always been a connection between the Anunnaki of uh, Armenia and also of Sumeria and also Egypt because um, their definition, or their kind of their, their title or nickname was the Shining Ones, and you have that explicitly documented in Egypt as well. And they behave the same way; they describe physically the same way. They also have the same method of worship, the same temple doctrine. So we're talking about the, uh, the same brotherhood living somewhere else. Now, fast forward to the time of Nefertiti, uh, there were uh, sort of stories in the Armenian traditions that there was lo a lot of intermarriage going on uh, between the, the uh, royal bloodline of Armenia and also the ones in Egypt, and to, to the point where the names are also found in Armenia. For example, the first 
um, what was it, Mena, the, the, which is the first pharaoh, and I quote, of a purely human bloodline, which uh, also the word Mena in Armenian means the first, uh, the first ruler. So there's an overlap here. Uh, Tutmosis also is an Armenian name. Now, by the time we get to about 1300 BC, we have Nefertiti. Now, you look at her bust, there is no way this woman is Egyptian, okay, or even Arabic. I mean, this woman clearly is Caucasian. You look at the features and the fine aquiline shape of the nose and everything, this woman clearly came from somewhere else. And it was posited uh, early on by the Egyptologist uh, Flinders Petrie as well, that uh, this woman had to come from the north. And there is one surviving letter uh, where after she marries Akhenaten, she writes to her father, to the kingdom in the north, to ask the father to bring down the dowry to Egypt. Now, what is she talking about? She's talking about Palestine, she's talking about Syria, she's talking about Mesopotamia. No, the kingdom to the north on the northern border of Egypt during her time was actually Armenia, uh, or what it was also, what, what it was called back then, which is Subartu and Urartu as well. So this, all these names are interchangeable. Yeah. So we have that connection, but the biggest connection is the fact that their offspring, Tutankhamun, uh, the DNA haplogroup to which he belongs, has been found to be linked to the Caucasus region in 9000 BC, which is exactly the region of Armenia, uh, just wow. after the flood. So we now have a genetic trail as well that links all this together. And from there, uh, once Tutankhamun uh, is, uh, I, I'm going to say this out loud, he was murdered quite clearly. Uh, now, Smenkare takes the throne uh, briefly. He marries uh, a, a, a sort of a, a, a woman, and then their offspring goes off to marry the prince of Scythia. Now, Scythia by then is the offspring territory of Armenia, okay? We're now talking in historical era, the kingdom that basically was taken in Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, and Northern Greece, huge area. And uh, she marries the, uh, the, prince, uh, the prince of Armenia, of uh, Scythia called Niul, and their offspring eventually ends up being the bloodline in Ireland, and she is uh, given the, the, the throne to rule over people, the authority to rule over people in Ireland, and then she becomes the first ruler of the people of Scotland, and her title was Scotta, which means the ruler of the people, and that's where we get the name Scotland from. So there is that connection of the divine bloodline that eventually escapes to Ireland and then jumps over to Scotland and starts the whole process up there as well. Wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. Well, it's good uh, fun, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's it's so fun to, uh, talking about like how all these cultures link, and it's it's so cool to finally start putting it like all together, and like it's it's finally it's fun to know like how it all started. Like it really, it's really cool to get answers. Like you know, yeah. Like, I mean, it's it was nothing. I mean, I've I've gone to Scotland so many times, and uh, I keep making notes and figuring out well, where, where did this come from and I mean, we have conical towers in Scotland. No one knows where they came from. And it was only when I went to Sardinia and found the same towers there that had been there for at least three to 4,000 years before was I able to make the connection that there was a group of people that moved from the Mediterranean all the way up to northern Scotland because even the archaeologists, for once, they can't explain how these towers appeared in, uh, in Scotland. They're completely anomalous. No one builds stuff like that unless you're in Sardinia. Well, the Sardinian people to this very day have one of the highest uh, rates of haplogroups in their DNA that come from the Armenian highlands as well. And uh, they were there uh, since at least 8,000 BC. 
So there's another group, uh, 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 this is also part of the story. Uh, as I said uh, originally, when the Armenian people, the Anu people moved around the Black Sea, uh, and they gave the name to the, uh, the biggest river in the region called the Danube, by the way, the, the tall, uh, blonde, blue-haired people moved north and gave the genetic imprint that be we became, uh, became known as Scandinavian. The other group went through the Mediterranean. They were the red-haired, green-eyed people that then went south around Portugal to the Basque region, and eventually they show up in Ireland. So the idea of uh, Irish people, you know, uh, indigenous people being uh, red-haired and all that, well, that comes all the way back to Sardinia and eventually back to Armenia as well. So you see, it's like, the story really it splits in the middle of uh, the Black Sea and then it goes around Europe and it finishes off in northwestern Europe. So it's a very, very long tradition. And uh, what's fun about it is that there was hardly any information on this. Uh, I literally just pieced this together from fragments and trying to link things from different parts of the world. So sometimes when you have to look at the answer to a specific location, you have to travel 5,000 miles over here to find out how we got over there. Well, I, 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 this is it's amazing information. It really is. Like, it, it, I, uh, it, I don't even know what to say. I'm like lost for words. It's just like, it's, it's, it's like, it's groundbreaking information. It really is. Like, it really I, is. I really, because uh, I had no idea either. I hope you get the, the recognition you deserve for it because I feel like you deserve a lot of recognition for this. I feel like you deserve, well, like, you. Uh, um, you know, to be honored for this because it's really, excellent information and then finding out where these people that like started our civilization and you know gave us the ability to you know become something you know and uh you know and 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 this takes out the idea of the of the, if, the, if we were genetically ma ma manipulated um we don't we the, what are your thoughts on that do you think that never happened like do you think uh that we were just humans like that uh because what be my only thing on that is like what describes the huge brain increase you know what i mean like we have in our in our evolution you know we have a huge brain our our brain just doubles inside you know and all of a sudden we're just like able to so it almost it looks like almost like alien intervention at some point what do you think oh i don't i don't i don't really buy the alien intervention at all i think it's much more local than that uh, and I'll tell you why, uh, because it would defeat the purpose of the law of non-intervention, uh, known to Star Trek fans as the prime directive, because that's where Gene Roddenberry got that information from. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's uh, you are not allowed to intercede in the development of another race. Now, was there manipulation genetically? No, I think that there was, uh, just not by the people we think that did it. I think uh, if you look very carefully at the Egyptian uh surviving documents and also some of the ones from india and the middle east uh you get a sense that after the flood there weren't many people around now you have one group of people who are obviously quite developed and they're genetically mismatched uh, they have elongated skulls they're much taller and then you got the human hunter gatherers who are very very different now that's going to cause problems but they have to breed in order to keep surviving otherwise you're not going to make it you're running out of people so it seems that the first ex uh, experiments uh, the first trials of mating did not work out too well 
there were all kinds of problems. And yes, there were also uh, people who, just like, you know, mad scientists also did some really stupid things. And it's quite suggested that uh, some of the fallen watchers, like I said, there's a small group of mischief makers. Not You can't lump all the watchers together, by the way. There were a small group of them that appeared to have done some really stupid things, which led to the, uh, you know, to the ire of the Anunnaki lords. They said, well, look, you, can't, you shouldn't be doing this. This is perverting the course of nature. Uh, we, need to, we need to stick you in a, in a big cave, hang you upside down in a field of magma and let you disappear. And they actually did that. There was a real penal colony up in the, in the, uh, in the mountains. Um, but, but if you follow the, the trajectory of uh, the fact that you have to maintain a kind of genetic line going in order to succeed in repopulating the earth, I think that there was a lot of trial and error that was going on because the Egyptians quite clearly state that uh, a certain time after the flood, there was a group of half human, half divine people who were looking after the front of Egypt. Well, that to me suggests that they did succeed at some point in intermarrying certain women and they, uh, their offspring obviously survived. Uh, the Egyptians are also very clear in saying that um, when they asked humans to take over the throne, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't, they would remove them from the throne. One of the uh, shining ones would take over until they could find another human who was responsible enough to carry on in their stead because they didn't want to govern. They wanted humans to find their own direction. They didn't want to get involved. So this is where you finally end up in 3000 BC with, the, with that wonderful phrase, um, the pharaoh Mena, the first human of a purely human bloodline, which means that by then the intermarriage process had succeeded uh, the, and the divine bloodline was being diluted again and again and again. But metaphorically and symbolically, what stayed with us was the concept of the ruler, the solar hero. So you have that in people going from Mongolia all the way to the Caesars uh, with, a, you know, with a laurel reef suggesting that they are the, the son of God or the son of the sky. That's a very old Anu description because Anu was the lord of the sky. It was essentially the same person as Ra, uh, the, uh, the, the solar principle upon which all life is founded. So you're looking at something that, uh, you know, and, and even in America, we have this, the same concept where a lot of uh, mismatching was going on between the tall people and the humans. But at some point, it somehow succeeded. And these were the leaders, the very tall leaders in our cultures. So, yes, I do believe that there was a lot of uh, a trial and error, but eventually, they, after thousands of years of experiments, I think they finally got it right. That's pretty amazing. That's, that's... Well, I hope they got it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> really. Well, um, can, can you tell everybody where to find the book, where to find your website and all that stuff, and, um, and that way they can pick it up and all that? Yeah, uh, if you want to support your authors, uh, don't buy it online, uh, if you know what I mean, because you're, re you're already making one man very, very rich, and he's already a billionaire. Support your authors by buying from them directly. So my website is at invisibletemple.com, along with 13 documentaries and got about seven books now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of work. What, what are some of your documentaries? Like, I, I never looked into them. Like, they just... Ah, shame on you. <laughs> um, I've, uh, well, I've been very busy during COVID. I mean, obviously, uh, sometimes you can't go anywhere. So I've been busy um, putting together uh, uh, four documentaries. The new one is uh, The Path to Paradise. And it shows how the concept of paradise was seen from different indigenous perspectives uh, and not from the way that Western religion has painted paradise. So it's a very, excuse me, it's a very, very different story. 
There was one about the or uh, Orion as the origin of the gods. Uh, again, uh, listening to indigenous people uh, telling the stories about how originally the gods not only came physically from Orion, but they used to be able to go from here to there using special techniques. And then they forgot the techniques, so they had to build temples and, and specific places in order to get from A to B. And then they forgot how to do that too. Uh, and then they relied on the process to be done shamanically. So again, it's a different way to look at the importance of Orion in different cultures and why it is so important. Um, I also did one on um, Scotland's hidden sacred past, which is the DVD that precedes the book. Uh, so the two actually go together quite well. Uh, originally, I didn't see uh, think that the, the story was going to be that developed until I had the time to look at it again, learn Armenian, and then the book kind of just uh, took on a completely different shape. Uh, and of course, one of my favorite DVDs is The Missing Gods, which is the companion to the book, The Missing Lands, that talks more about the people that we've talked about, the Anu and Virakosha and uh, Kukulkan and Quetzalcoatl. All of these people are all connected by the same group of people. They're all linked to the Anu and the Shining Ones all around the world. And they form kind of brotherhood and sisterhood. And they appear to have lived on eight islands or places that behave like islands around the world. So one of my favorites. Yeah, I'll have to, well, I, mean, I want all my fans to go check that out. I'm sure everybody will. This sounds awesome. Well, th thank you so much, Freddie. This was always so enlightening. It's it's always like a, a pleasure to have you on. And uh, and until your next book or, or the next time we talk, it'll, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Hey, uh, I'll talk to you soon.